This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 25th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. The message is by Father Ron Baird. In today's Gospel lesson, we see that the disciples and Jesus have finally arrived in Jerusalem. Remember when we started this journey, they were at Caesarea Philippi in the very northern part of the country and had been walking um, through Galilee and down through Samaria and into where ultimately into Jerusalem. must have been a long walk because so many things had happened and Jesus had been chiding them along the way to stop seeing things from, from earthly eyes, stop seeing things in a human way and start seeing things in a godly way so that they could truly grasp what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And if you recall, they'd been arguing about who would be greatest and, and how many times do I have to forgive, all sorts of things. Well, now they finally arrived, and, and uh, the disciples, my guess by this point, are really glad because Jesus has someone else to focus on. Um, they can't, doesn't have to work with them anymore. And so he goes into the temple and begins to teach, um, which was his custom. He would go into the synagogues out in the countryside and teach there when they were there. And, and the chief priests and the scribes come and say, who are you? <laughs> I mean, you sort of imagine if somebody came into our church and started preaching, you know, we, well, wait, who, who are you? <laughs> I mean, who told you you could do this? I mean, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, I'll answer you if you answer me this question first. Now, I want to tell you something. I have a lot of people who say, I've got all these questions I want to ask God when I get to heaven. Inevitably, if you read Scripture, when somebody asks God a question, he, does, he asks you a question. I mean, over and over again. So unless you're prepared, I wouldn't bother. <laughs> He's going to ask you something, and it's probably going to be something similar to this. He says, was John the Baptist sent from heaven or not? Well, they get together and huddle. Always, it's like a game show, you know, where they're all getting together and talking about, you know, what is it, what could it be? And so they, they finally come up with their final answer. And, uh, but they're in trouble because they say, well, if we say he was from heaven, they say, well, then why didn't you believe him? And if they're going to say, if we say, no, he was a human being and not from heaven, then the people are going to be upset because they all think he was a prophet. And, you know, this is a no-win situation for us which is kind of funny because they frequently wanted to put Jesus in that very situation. And so they come back and say, we don't know. And so Jesus said, well, if you won't tell me about that, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do what I do either. And then he goes on to tell him what he really wants to talk about. He says, look, there was a man who had two sons. And he told one of his sons, today I want you to go into the vineyard and work for me. And the son said, I'm not going to do that. And he walks out the door and he leaves. And he, and he wanders off. And as he's walking, he starts thinking about it and says, oh, man, dad's always so good to me. And he does anything I want. You know, that's kind of selfish. I really need to go. And so off he goes into the vineyard and does what his father had asked him to do to begin with, even though he told him he wouldn't. Well, the second son um, comes to the breakfast table and he says, well, I need for you to go into the vineyard and work for me today. And he says, oh, sure, dad, no problem. I'll go do that. And he goes out, and, but he never gets there. He, you know, he could not get there for lots of reasons. Maybe he was distracted. Maybe he never had any intention of going there. It was just easier than arguing with the old man. I mean, it could be for many reasons. But, but he told him he would, but then he didn't. Then Jesus says to the chief scribes and the Pharisees, 
which one of these two did the father's will? They said, well, obviously the first one who went, who said he wouldn't, but then went and did it. And he says, that's right. And I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you do. Do we ever wonder why they went to crucify him? I mean, <laughs> it's not a great start to the week. And, and, you know, what do you mean the tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get into heaven before we do? How, why would you say such a thing? And his whole point has to do with it's not so much about the things that you say. Because you see, the, the chief priests and the scribes were very good at saying the right words. They knew what things to tell people. Because they knew scripture, they knew what was in it, they could quote it, you know, and, and they would always tell people what they were doing wrong and what they should be doing right. But in their heart, they weren't living it. They weren't living under God's reign. They were just using all of those words to meet what they wanted to have happen. And so as a result, the prostitutes and tax collectors who had gone to John the Baptist, who hadn't been living that way at all, you know, and, and, and didn't even know, probably didn't know what it was, much less tried to live it, suddenly had changed their mind and said, no, I want to follow God now. And because of that, they would get into the kingdom of heaven before the chief priests and the scribes. Now, you might think, I'm really glad I'm not a chief priest and scribe, except for the fact that it gets easy for us to be that way too. It becomes very easy for people to say that they are Christians particularly in a, in a nation that's predominantly Christian. You know, it'd be harder if we were putting our job on the line. You know, if you admitted you were a Christian, you were going to get fired. You'd probably think twice about it. You know, but, but we so compartmentalize our lives that we say, well, I believe I go to church. Or I don't go to church, but I still believe. You know, it's always about I believe. Mark Cohen is a singer-songwriter. I don't know if you all know him or not. He wrote a song back in the 80s, called Walking in Memphis. Anybody remember that song? And, and in it, he talks about his experience in Memphis, Tennessee, where the ghost of Elvis was and uh, the Blues Street on Beale Street and all that sort of stuff. And, and he goes into this blues bar at night, and, and there's this woman singing gospel blues in the place, and he starts playing and singing with her. And in one line in the thing says, she says to him, Sir, are you a Christian? He says, Ma'am, I am tonight. And sometimes it becomes easy for us to be like that, too, as Christians. Well, I am right now, but are you tomorrow morning at work? You know, would you claim it as boldly? And what would that look like if you did? Because that's really what Jesus is talking about in the parable. And we get a clue of what that means in today's epistle, where Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. And when he writes to him, he says something that to us can sound sort of strange. He says, work out your salvation, and this translation is also translated, work out your faith, with fear and trembling. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. Now, what does fear and trembling bring up to your mind? Being scared, yeah. Why would you be scared? Judgment, yeah, I, this might not work out too good. Work out your faith with fear and trembling, because if you don't do it right, the axe is going to fall. Well, but at the same time, being Protestants, we've always heard that you know that you are not judged by your works; you're judged by faith. 
and faith alone, right? And so if faith is what saves and not works, then why would that matter? You know, and, and so we, but we see here Paul, the very author of justification by faith, says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Well, the book of James covers it pretty readily in a, in a sort of rebuttal to what some people were saying about what Paul said. But, but even more so, I think a more contemporary person, Rich Mullins, who's a contemporary Christian uh, artist, um, Christian songwriter, wrote a, a song that most people don't know. I mean, it's kind of an obscure song, but it's a great song. In which he has this line. He says, faith without works is just make-believe. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. You have to think about that, how useful is a screen door on a submarine. But Faith without works. And, and the point is, is it's not the works that save us. You, know, you can't work your way to enough faith. But if you truly have faith, then the works flow out of the faith. And so if you say, I believe, I believe, but you don't ever do anything about it, you just wear the label, then is that real belief? But if it changes you and the way you behave, then what you will find is that you work out your faith with fear and trembling. That word work out is hard to translate into English. It really means, you could also translate it, live out your faith or live into your faith. I mean, it could be, a variety of ways, but it doesn't mean go do things or, or make it happen. What it really means is um, be part of it, participate in it, live it out. And so, but we still have that fear and trembling part, don't we? And it's an interesting thing, fear and trembling. Why should I do it with fear and trembling of its faith? I mean, it seems so odd. Well, again, part of it has to do with what fear and trembling means in our society, in our time. Fear and trembling means something bad's coming. If I don't do this right, I could be in big trouble, which has some truth in what this means. But, but perhaps a better way for us to understand it would be if we said, live out your faith in awe and wonder. In awe and wonder. That word awesome. Yeah, that, that like, Wow. I mean, that's just so overwhelming. I mean, it makes me feel so small in the midst of it. It's about recognizing our place and who we really are. You know, to, to truly understand fear, you have to go back to the Old Testament where in Proverbs it says, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. It doesn't mean the beginning of wisdom is, you know, shaking your boots anytime he shows up. It means the beginning of wisdom is knowing that he's God and I'm not. He's the creator, I'm the created. He's the one who decides, I'm the one who does. He's the Lord, I'm the servant. That kind of fear has a very different kind of connotation to it. We would tend to speak of it more as respect or honor. You know, when we respect someone or honor them, you know, then we tend to listen to what they say and take it seriously and do those things. And so this fear and trembling has to do with that awe and wonder, that sense of, you know, Lord, you are so great that I truly want to live into the salvation that you have given me. Because as he goes on to say after that, for it is God himself in you. 
who is doing these things. See, it's not you who does them. It is God who does them. So what does that take if we're going to be like the, the son who might say no sometimes and then show up, or in the son who is, well, let me give you an example from my own life. When I was in seminary, I went to Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, and I lived in Louisville, Kentucky. So during breaks, Christmas, summer, I would drive between Alexandria and, and Louisville, and to do that, I had to go through West Virginia. And as I would drive into West Virginia, we always had a sign, Wild, Wonderful West Virginia. You know, and there was a slogan, West by God, Virginia, almost heaven. And, and I would always say, I mean, it became a ritual. I would always say, that's because nobody else would live there. Because as far as I was concerned, you know, West Virginia was full of hillbillies, poor people, backward people, didn't know what they were doing. Shows you how much I knew about West Virginia, doesn't it? And, and, and I couldn't imagine, and, and, you know, in the wintertime, particularly at Christmas, when you drove by, you'd, be, you'd see washing machines and couches on people's front porches from the, high, from the interstate. You'd see, and I was going, what in the, I mean, what in the world? Who are these people? I mean, I was sophisticated. And so year after year, for three years, I did this. Started for one year in Louisville in my internship, and do you know where the first call to a parish I had was? West Virginia. And I said, you knew all the time. <laughs> you had this planned. Every time I would say that, you'd probably, <laughs> we'll show him. And what's amazing about us, I spent a little over six years of my life in West Virginia and discovered wonderful people. Do you know I knew more millionaires in West Virginia than I've known in Kentucky, Virginia, and Ohio combined? Isn't that amazing? I'm thinking, what happened to all the poor hillbillies? And, I mean, they weren't there. They had poor people. Not as many as we have, by the way. <laughs> there weren't as many people live there. But they do have poor people. But I found a work ethic, a belief in God that was foundational, even sometimes unhealthily so, because many of them didn't go to church because they didn't think they were worthy. But I discovered a truly wonderful life. And all because I chose to say, I won't go there. But then I did. All too often, that's what our life is like. We're afraid that God's going to ask me to do something I don't want to do. And so we just aren't going to do it. And yet, when we do it, we find out that we truly live out who we are truly called to be, and we become more us than we were before we started. Despite the fact that it would have seemed, you know, in hindsight, you know, looking forward, that it, was, that it was going to be awful. And here I was, I'd lived in Louisville, Kentucky, a town of about a million people. Went to school in uh, Virginia, in Washington, D.C., which had about six million at that time. And then my first um, call to a parish was in a town of 5,000. And it was like the biggest place in the whole county. I mean, the other towns only had like four or 500 people in them. I mean, there was nothing. You know, if you wanted to go shopping, you went to Huntington or Charleston. Because other than groceries, you were sort of out of luck. Although you could go to Kmart. I mean, there really wasn't much to do. And I, I thought, well, how, what do people do? How do they survive? I'd go crazy in a place like that. And yet what I found out is that life slows down a bit, and you actually sit down and talk to people. 
And because you can go to the hospital in two minutes, that's how far it was from the hospital to my, my house, I could go see people every day. And you really get to know people in a way that I've never been able to do here. You know, and, and there was a, a, a closeness of community that sometimes was stifling, but often was wondrous. And I was loved for probably more for who I am than I'd ever known. All because I said, I'm not going to do that, but I did. And it worked out. That's what it's like to live out your faith with fear and trembling. I couldn't figure out for the life of me, why in the world would God want me to go to West Virginia, of all people? Wouldn't he want someone to go to West Virginia who would like living in West Virginia? I mean, wouldn't that make more sense? He said, no, I want you to go. And I have to tell you, honestly, when I came up here, St. Matthew's was not my first choice. I'd never even heard of St. Matthew's when I, came, when I moved up to Columbus, which was the church I came up to originally. And, it, and I met with um, the guy who was the canon to the bishop at the time, and he said, I, I, St. John's in Worthington had an opening. And I said, I think I'd really be interested in that church. And I think I could be really good. Many of you all come from St. John's, I know. It's your all's fault. Um, and so I, I actually said, you know, I, that's really what I want to put my name in for. And he goes, well... We can do that, you know, but um, there's another parish I'd really like for you to consider. I said, what's that? He said, St. Matthew's, it's in Westerville. I said, I've never heard of Westerville. He said, well, it's not too far from Worthington. And I said, well, what's it like? He said, well, it's not as big as St. John's. It's a smaller congregation, about 100 people, and, and they, they think of themselves as charismatics. And I said, then why are you talking to me about it? I'm not a charismatic. <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. I just think that... You would really love these people, and they would really love you. And I said, I don't know about that. I mean, what else can you tell me? Well, they had a lot of trouble with their last priest. It didn't go too well, and they're, they're kind of in a down cycle, and they really need somebody to, to you know, believe in them again. And I went, this is sounding better all the time. How's St. John's? I mean, what's their time? <laughs> and so he said, well, i tell you what. Can, we put, can I put your name in both of them at the same time? So I said, well, okay. Guess where I ended up? Thank God, I mean, that I came here and, and fell in love again with the people that were here. Um, because I said, I don't want to go to a charismatic church that's struggling. Who in their right mind does that? You know, I want to go to a historic, prosperous church with an endowment fund where I can be the rector, traced my roots all the way back to the 1700s. Wouldn't that be good? Yeah. And God said, yeah, right. <laughs> God knows me better than I know me. And I've been blessed that that actually happened that way. That's why so often what we need to do is to work out our faith with fear and trembling. So how do we do that? What would it look like if we actually began to live out our lives that way? Well, Paul earlier in the same passage in Philippians tells us. He gives us the example of Jesus Christ himself. He says that Christ... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be held on to. Our translation said exploited. You know, he didn't say, I'm God. I'm cool. Why would I want to go be born in a manger? Sounds like a bad idea to me. You know, those people are dirty for crying out loud. I'm God. I don't do that. No, he didn't do that. But it says, rather, he emptied himself, meaning he drained all of what it meant 
to be powerful and mighty and glorious and omniscient and all of those things that, that, that make being God great. And he became a servant. That word is kenosis. It means self-emptying. You know, God didn't make him do it. He chose to humble himself. It says, being a servant, he humbled himself even to death on a cross. And because of this, because of this, he has been given a name to which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. All because he emptied himself and took on the role of a servant. That's the path to who you are. If you really want to be the person God created you to be, then stop trying to do it yourself. Let it go. Stop pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You're only going to fall over. Rather, empty your own willfulness and say, Lord, I am yours. I am an empty vessel. Fill me up and do with me what you will. And do those things that God calls you to do. Because oddly enough, in the doing of them, and even if your first reaction is, you've got to be kidding me, I don't think I want to go do that, go do it anyway. Because what you will find is you will become different. You will become you and not this facade that you've had to wear for the world to see so that they would approve. And the truth is they may not approve. They didn't approve of Jesus. But it won't matter because you will know more joy, more peace, more contentment, more hope than you've ever known in your life. You will feel more alive than you have ever felt in your life simply because you said yes. Now, that sounds really good, but what does it look like in everyday life? Well, what it looks like in everyday life is tomorrow morning, maybe it won't wait that long, whatever you're doing, ask yourself, how does this glorify God? 